Whether you're at a gaming table, in your comfiest chair reading a book, or listening at home, there's nothing like a great adventure story. But they don't happen by accident. Welcome to the Joy of GMing, a special interview series on the craft of great gaming. There's just something magic about sitting down to a good table with great friends, isn't there? If you're a lifelong gamer or a newbie rolling up your first character sheet, if you're a DM or a GM or just can't get enough tabletop talk in your day, this is the show for you. Each episode will bring you amazing guest speakers to talk about writing games and running them, building fantastic worlds and compelling story arcs, and oh-so-useful tricks of the trade. Here's some amazing stories, get inspired for your next game, and join us for an hour and a half or so of lively conversation. This sister series to Anywhere But Now, our Doctor Who actual play podcast, will be released between mods or episodes with our ongoing serialized show. We cover some making of and behind the scenes tidbits of our latest mods as well, so do stick around. I'm Casey Jones. Over the last dozen years, I've written and produced screenplays, children's animation for TV and film, graphic novels, stage plays, murder mysteries, and audio adventures. I've also been writing and running tabletop games for over 10 years. Join us as we dive deep into tabletop with experts in the field. Experts like our special guest today, Craig Hatler, creator of Shadowlight and Persona. Craig is an IT desktop support manager for what is historically an African-American college in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's been playing tabletop games for over 30 years and has been developing and designing his own games for at least half that time. Wow. Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Casey. You're very welcome. Craig, tell us, what drew you to designing your own game system? So, I shall hearken back to the days of 2007, the days of yore, when Wizards of the Coast announced that they were moving forward with uh, from 3.5 D&D to 4th edition D&D. And at the time, uh, I and colleagues of mine, fellow players, I was in a uh, gaming group in the uh, in northern New Jersey, which is where I grew up and spent uh, basically my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And we were working on an original fantasy setting for 3.5 D&D at the time. And then Wizards of the Coast said, well, we're going to put out 4th edition and we're going to make it drastically different from 3.5. And we're going to release it under a much more restrictive license than the OGL. Ruh-roh. And we all looked at each other and said, well, if this is the case, then why are we, why are we continuing to use this, this rule system by this big mega corporation uh, that mm-hmm. they, they just have their own plans and they're not really interested. I mean, they're, and 3.5 had been out for five years, four, year, four years up until that point, and then fourth, mm-hmm. 2008. Third edition in its entirety was out since 2000, and it's what was coincided with the open gaming movement. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the open gaming license and you have this freedom to be able to release your own supplements, your own adventures, your own... Campaign settings. Campaign settings. And that spirit, I guess, seemed like it was, well, you know, we're just not interested in this anymore. So, but what I find very interesting is, is that it seems to have all come full circle as of this past January, because we are now past fourth and into fifth, Mm -hmm. and was released under the OGL. 
But then Wizards of the Coast had this had this bug again where they're like, yeah, you know what? Maybe the OGL isn't doing so great for us um, until the community pushed back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're all going to go running for the hills. But that is where things started as far as Shadowlight and Persona is concerned. Shadowlight and Persona, basically, we decided that uh, we were going to release our own uh, original rule system, that we were going to draw upon all the different games that we had played um, individually together as a group with other people mm -hmm. in our respective uh, histories as as tabletop role players. So nice. that's what we set out to do. We played it and we play tested it actively, I would say, from about 2007 through 2010. And then wow. uh, each of us in the group sort of, we went, all went off on our own directions. And um, I moved, I moved from New Jersey to Connecticut. Um, mm -hmm. And then from Connecticut, um, four years ago, down here to North Carolina. And around July of last year, so 2022, I basically, I had gotten the idea that I really want, I had gotten inv very involved in the TTRPG community on over Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. I was starting to connect with other um, indie designers and decided that it was the right time for me to take this thing that had been sitting on the shelf, collecting dust, and basically... So let's take it, let's polish it, let's let's look at the language, make sure the language is inclusive, and then let's see what could be done to to get it published for real, for real. <laughs> for yes. real. Yes, yes we love quotes. those air quotes hovering <laughs> over those those dangerous two words. Brilliant. So how do you describe Shadowlight and Persona to new players? Basically, what I kind of my elevator pitch is to imagine yourself in a world where things aren't always what they seem or things may seem out of the ordinary and get, and will get you curious and you will soon find that the strange and the mysterious and the whimsical and wondrous is in fact uh, something more than just fairy tale and and mythology and now that might be a good thing it might be a terrible thing it might be um you know it might endanger the safety and security of your friends and loved ones uh but nevertheless there is more to the world out there than what you're able to see with your five your experience with your senses i was influenced a lot by anthology fiction when it came mm. to the kind of storytelling that i wanted to do with shadowlight and persona so uh twilight zone more recently things like black mirror uh uh, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, basically this idea that, you know, you can have this encapsulated story, you know, whether it takes place, whether in, in TTRPG terms, whether it takes place in a single one shot or maybe over the course of a three or four sessions. Uh, mm -hmm. but, a standalone. Um, a, exactly. And that standalone can, and one standalone could look very different from another. You know, you could have because you're going to have an opening discussion with everybody at the table in your group. Mm -hmm. and you're going to say, hey, where do we want this to take place? What uh, what kind of time period? What are the, the genre conventions that we're going to look at? Are we going to mash up genres? Are we going to throw genre out the window? I mean, I I grew up all with, um, you know, things like He-Man and Thundercats and, and Voltron. Same. Basically, which... The lines between genre were blurred. The idea that you had these worlds where you had magic and you had technology and there was really no distinction. Like I didn't really start 
I don't even know when I started using genre terms to be perfectly honest, but I grew up with that before ever getting my hands on pure science fiction or pure fantasy. So, let alone light sci-fi. <laughs> oh yeah, light sci-fi, hard, hard sci-fi. Sci <laughs> you know, high fantasy, uh, sword and sorcery. If you want to talk, you know, Conan, uh, Conan and and Robert E. Howard and uh, Fritz Lieber and Elric and things like that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I my my New Jersey longtime gaming group friends uh, made sure to mock me mercilessly because I had not seen Conan the Barbarian prior to 2000. Uh, it just never, never came up, never, you know, they were horrified when they heard that I had not seen it before and that I'd been playing D&D for as long as I have. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen it before. But meanwhile, I, I grew up with The Dark Crystal and Star mm -hmm. Wars and uh, Return to Oz and... Labyrinth. Labyrinth, exactly. You know, Jim Jim Henson, Brian Froud, all these the strange and and Dark Crystal. I credit as a as a significant influence on the lore in Shadowlight. Mm. The idea that there was once this this species, and then something happened, and then there were no longer that species. There were species that took its place. And, and what's the story there? Did they split? Did one go away and come and others come in? You don't really know for sure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dark Crystal is a big uh, influence for me as a as the kind of stories that I enjoy experiencing, telling, being involved in. So, yeah, it's incredible how even a single piece of fiction, whether it's a short story as part of an anthology or an episode of The Twilight Zone, or even something as involved as an entire world that only exists in one feature film and decades later a streaming prequel can right. leave an entire crater in your impressions of like oh my god that was incredible my worldview has changed i've been pulled towards something that speaks to me um i would love to hear how you developed your own lore for Shadowlight and what makes it unique for you and for your players so the the lore for Shadowlight was intended to drive the idea of a of a multiverse, which is actually kind of funny because we're inundated with multiverses nowadays. Now, yes, yeah, now. But I mean, when when and I guess they really have been around ever since you know Crisis on Infinite Earths. If you go to DC mm -hmm. Comics, you know they've been around since the seventies or eighties. But really, for me, I wanted the ability to for characters from different gaming groups to be able to um, to jump tables, basically. Mm. To have a common rule system that in at this table, they're playing they're playing uh, space opera and you know rocket ships and ray guns and and all of a sudden, oh no, uh, a wormhole opens or a tear in the fabric of space-time and they get sucked in. And now it's, you know, it's a world where it's very, um, like think czarist Russia in 19th century, only the royal the royal families all have uh, these giant robots that serve as their personal guardians. Like a, that, that, that was as just- As one a, does. As one does, yes, exactly. And I mean, they're like legacy, they're legacy robots. They're passed down from generation to generation and you know they're they they they're a, they're a status symbol for the, the different royal families and and I mean I just completely 
pull that out of thin air. Like, um, and wonderful. So that that was kind of my primary driver is as I wanted to, you know, you have this group here in. I mean, I I have played in groups that lasted for the length of a convention. I've played in groups that have lasted for years. Mm-hmm. One group in particular, um, I went to Villanova um, from 96 to 2000, and I have remained close with my D&D group from, the, uh, from there starting in roughly 2000 and uh, have continued to meet up with them at least once a year uh, now for over 20 years. And in some cases, we have actually, as a matter of fact, it was, I believe, this past July, because um, we meet up every summer. Uh, we picked up characters that we haven't touched in in over 20 years. Wow! From from a D, from the D and D, the very first D and D campaign we all participated in, and that's what I wanted. You know, I've, the the ability to make a character where the rules, at least the kernel of the rule system, is common mm-hmm. enough that they can jump from one table in one group because every table in every group is going to house rule. They're gonna yeah. they're gonna they're going to, you know, even if it's even if it's Dungeon D&D or, or uh, RuneQuest or whatever. These highly, you know, specific published games that people are going to house rule to to some degree or another or, you know, and in some cases they might rip out whole subsystems and who knows. Mm-hmm. But I wanted a kernel. I wanted something very, I wanted a, a, a effectively just a core mechanic. Like, mm-hmm. here's how you make characters. Here's how you resolve conflict. I wanted those things to be universal so that way the characters all operated the same way. So if you truly had a cross genre or cross setting event where you had multiple characters from multiple different campaigns all wind up at the same table, that you could do that with a minimum of headache. That's really smart. What is it like using Shadowlight to build PCs? Coming from games that don't have classes and don't have levels, I played a lot of West End games, Star Wars D6, in high school and in college. I could r- have you make a character and do that. I could do it off the top of my head. I don't need a book. Like I, I, that's how well I, how how often I ran it, and I wanted that flexibility. I didn't want characters to be tied into a, an archetype. I mean, they could, you could, if you wanted to. Yeah, I could, I could provide you with guidelines or pre-generated characters. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I wanted you have points that you distribute to attributes. You distribute those after you, you have those attributes, and then you have traits. So those are the two categories of a Shadowlight and Persona character: is attributes and traits. So your attributes, uh, by default, you have six, and they do things. There's your social stat, your physical stat, your mental stat, coordination. Thing, yeah, exactly. You're, you um, want, again, that being the default people can take that kernel of the rule system and say, hey, you know what? We don't need six attributes. We just need three. Or just we just need four. Or we just need two. You know, you can... I highly encourage... I want people to muck with the system, to muck with the rules. I want people to tear it apart and put it back together again and and have it suit their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so by default, six, um, six attributes. The attribute serves two purposes. It acts as a modifier to a die roll, and mm-hmm. it... Um, it determines the maximum number of trait of, of a given trait. So each of the attributes is linked to a trait, and if you have a three in that attribute, then that means the maximum number of trait of that particular trait is that you can have is three. Okay. And so 
the core mechanic for dice rolling is uh, it's all D10 based. Okay. Show some love to the D10s. Yes. Um, so you're, you have skills, and your skills tell you how many dice you roll. So if I have a if I have a an attack a, a sword skill or a strike skill, I, I always want to encourage people to make skills that are that are active. It might be swing, or it might be slam, or smash, or or slice. You know, some sort of a lot of S words. A lot of S words. Yes. You're going to choose a relevant attribute to to connect to that because that's going to be the modifier that you use. So if it's smash, it might be very physical. It might be you know um, brute force. So it would be your stature attribute, and it would be so your stature attribute would be uh, two, three, four, and so on up. And then your smash skill would be X number of dice. So you have a rating in that skill that t tells you how many dice to roll. So mm -hmm. if I don't like you and I want to smash you, I'm going to roll the rating number worth of D10s. And I'm always going to look at the top die. So the top, the highest result that I roll. So if I roll a, a three, a four, and a seven, then the, the relevant number to start is the seven. I add my modifier so you keep to the highest die that you roll. You you start with it because there's always the possibility of, of ties. So the more dice you have, the um, the person with more dice is always going always has a better chance of winning out in the challenge uh, because you have the potential to break ties. Nice, that makes sense. Uh, and, and again, that's the default. And what I really love, and I, I probably need to start doing this myself, is, is uh, start using the multiple dice as a jumping off point for alternative resolution methods. What you see in a lot of a lot of games since I would say maybe the two, 2009, 2010, I, you know, Apocalypse World was was this thing that kind of ushered in the concept of moves and, and fictional triggers, but also the idea of, of success with consequence. So you don't have the binary success right. fail. You have the you have the middle ground where it's okay, well you succeed but something happens. You you have to give something up or you have to or you lose something or something help help something else happens in addition to that success. Mm -hmm. So I see the core mechanic, the challenge in, in Shadowline Persona to be fruitful ground. Uh, to offer a lot of opportunity to say, hey, well maybe instead of worrying about ties Maybe that second die means something. Maybe that maybe maybe the GM says, "Hey, you know what? Instead of using the top die, you have to use the second die." Maybe it's a desperate situation or something like that. There's um, fictional positioning is another. I want to say that the, is another concept that you know you might be you know you might be trying to you know deactivate the bomb and you know you've got like. You know, you've got gunfire over your head, and I mean, things are just really, really terrible. And and it's just you're in this situation where you're really under the gun, so you may not be at your best. Exactly. Yeah, uh, you may have to take the next die down, and that, that yeah, that's that's just sort of my like tinker, experimental mind thinking about all the different ways in which. But again, present the present the kernel, present the core mechanic, and then let people tear it apart and do whatever they want with it. Nice. Yeah, we've had success with similar mechanics uh, running the Cubicle 7 Doctor Who okay. games where, you know, if, for instance, someone is trying to deactivate a ticking bomb, that right. will be more difficult if, like you say, they also have to deal with keeping their head down uh, to avoid blaster fire. So there's uh, a plus two to the challenge rating, or they could be at disadvantage and they have to roll an extra die and keep the lower of the two. Those darn Cybermen. And just like you mentioned, 
like rolling low or rolling uh, one on the die can give you one of those nice modifiers like, yes, but. So yes, you manage to uh, slow the ticking, but it restarts again at the start of the timer. Oh no, there was a there was a mercury switch that was, you know, underneath the you know, underneath the time the timer and, and now, you know, you have to make you have to keep it steady, otherwise, you know, it's like you you're finding multiple layers of uh, of dastardly whatever. We love our dastardly layers. We absolutely do. Yeah, no, absolutely. So walk us through some of the collaborative storytelling that I've seen done on your YouTube channel and described in the core mechanics, what makes the Craig Hatler approach to collaborative storytelling unique? I, over the years, have played so many different games with so many different people and in environments like conventions and mm-hmm. you know your friendly local gaming store. And I've played with people of all different ages, gender, ethnicity, background. As far as I'm concerned, the best experiences come out of that collaborative environment that kind of environment where there is no status level between the gm and the players where the gm is just a player with a special set of moves and yes the gm might be the final arbiter but i but me as the gm or in the case of shadow light and persona i decided to to call the gm the chorus because i was very much in keeping with the concept of uh, Greek tragedy and, and your your theater masks and what you know. So the chorus is the collective body of NPCs, but is also the the moral compass for the uh, for the gaming experience. You know, there's the, the chorus wears a variety of hats. That's wonderful. I don't. I think that everybody at the table deserves to have some degree of agency when it comes to guiding the course of the game and guiding the course of the story and the narrative. To, to really reinforce that, that collaborative experience. Mm-hmm. So I have taken a lot of cues from, from story games, from, from the, the Forge movement from the you know, early to mid 2000s, you know, ask questions and act on the answers, uh, draw maps and leave blanks. Wonderful. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I've been in, I've been in games where I was expected to sit back and be railroaded. Mm, nobody likes that. I was in game. I was in it. I was just, just literally, just recently. So within the last ten years, when I lived in Connecticut, I was in a D and D game where the uh, the DM clearly said, "Well, I've written this setting and I've written my plot, um, and there's really nothing." I mean, he's obviously he didn't say it out loud, but he 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 demonstrated in in the way that we played the game. You're gonna you're gonna sit back and you're gonna watch my game my my story. And there's really nothing you can, you can do things individually. Like, you know, you can go into an encounter and you could, you could, you know, you could fight the Aboleth and you could kill the Aboleth and Grey. But as far as the meta plot or as far as the overarching, this stuff is going to happen regardless of what you do. And we kind of didn't really realize that until a certain point in. And I was like, yeah, if it weren't for the fact that I love the table and I love the people that I'm playing with and I love... The role playing and the and the play acting and all that stuff, I'd be like, yeah. have a nice life and, uh, and walk away. Because some people just don't understand that if that's what you want, then write a novel, write write a story, go home and home, grab a fifty cent composition notebook and and write your your Game mm-hmm. of Thrones fan fiction. Like, it's all good. 
but that's not what a role it's not what it's is. supposed to be certainly uh, exactly it's not it's not what it's supposed to be and it's, and it's not and it shouldn't be that it should be that the people at the table the players using their characters at any given time have the ability to this is what i want to do and what they decide to do should have impact on the course of the narrative absolutely on the course of the the the, the play that emerges it, there should never be this well you know i prepared this you know i wrote that you know oh my gosh i can't believe that they didn't you know go this way and they didn't find my dungeon well too bad the other side of the coin to that is is there should be some discussion in advance there should be what kind of game do you want to play especially when you're playing one as as huge as D, where it's you know what kind of game do you want to play do you want to play an investigative game an explorational game uh, an intrigue setting. You know, do you want to be monster hunters? Well, you know, not well, yeah. just setting, but also uh, tone and premise, and and those are the kind of questions that that I loaded into the beginning of game creation for Shadowlight Persona to say, what kind of game do we want to play? You know, is it going to be serious? Is it going to be lighthearted? Is it going to take? Where is it going to take place? Is it going to be in the real world? Is it a fictional world? So you answer all these questions in advance. Absolutely. Because you want to make sure that everybody at the table is on the same page. It really is a part of <laughs> not only setting the table, but building on expectations, like using systems like lines and veils. I've recently had interesting challenge putting together a table of Curse of Strahd, one of the scariest D&D campaign settings, mm -hmm. and then incorporating the lines and veils of my four players, making sure that the house of horrors that they, you know, waywardly climb into does not have any of the things they have explicitly said they want nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. You can custom tailor uh, setting and uh, the tone of the story that you're telling so that it does avoid and respect the wishes and the tastes of your players without condescending them, without patronizing them. Without making them feel unsafe. Exactly. I never I never want my players to yes. feel unsafe at the table. I want their characters to feel unsafe. That's 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 part of the joy for me. Um, the uncertainty of the of the math rocks that they are rolling. But uh, I absolutely take into account how much role play do they want versus how much hack and slash violence. Just as you say, is this a game that's going to involve things like courtly intrigue? Would they rather be investigating a mystery of some kind, whether it's in sci-fi or fantasy or a noir setting, things like that. So that with their expectations in mind, we can bring something to the table that is satisfying, that acknowledges that you've listened to your table, which they are gonna eat up. They're gonna eat it up with both hands and also respect what they've, what they've clearly told you they are and are not interested in because almost as bad as you know disrespecting a player by bringing something that violates one of their their lines or crosses one of their lines almost mm -hmm. as bad is watching a player's yep. eyes glaze over as they lose interest because we veered off onto an info dump for 20 minutes and there's nothing for them to do where's the, literally where is the fun in that you know right mm -hmm. also too i heard one, uh, once i had uh, a friend describe story gaming and collaborative mm. role-playing as being like jazz and I dig it. 
you don't get that from having an individual author. You don't get that from having an, you know, you, you certainly get an, a, a, a result that mm-hmm. is art, but it's a different type of art. And the collaborative aspect of tabletop role-playing has always resonated with me in that respect because there are outcomes that you can see unfold in a collaborative environment that you never would having a single author. No. And uh, to give you a perfect example, so just recently I was fortunate to be invited to um, an actual play, I guess a, a group called Nerds with Dice. Okay. And uh, they set up, I want to say that their default is they set up three session games. So they do their casting call, they get people who are are interested, get everybody together, talk about, you know, have them fill out out a uh, a questionnaire about those lines and veils in advance. Then you get together to discuss them. And then you start your, you, you start with, so you really have a, you have a session zero, and then you have episode one, episode two, episode three. And one of the players at, in the was, oh, first of all, everybody came to it, and they had almost decided in advance that, okay, well, based on your your pitch, it sounds like very much like we're going to do kind mm. of a modern day supernatural type of environment. So, you know, 2020s, cell phones and internet and whatever, but there's going to be creepy things. And, um, uh, it's not something that I ever had done. I'm, every everything that I had done as far as Shadowlight and Persona had always been like this is very strongly fantasy. This is very strongly sci-fi, very strongly mm-hmm. steampunk, uh, and so on. But the, the mod, I had never really explored the the idea of a modern game to any real uh, depth. I decided, without going into a whole lot of exposition especially because you can go and you can watch the first two episodes so the first two episodes are available on their youtube and the third episode just happened last tuesday and should be on their twitch basically i decided to set everything in uh my ex-wife lived for a little while in uh yorktown what's it westchester county in new york and so there's a lot of turn of the 20th century buildings and there was one in particular called ansonia lodge which was a boarding house in the turn of the 20th century which had been you know passed down and changed hands and was turned into an apartment it it looks straight out of a steampunk store like when there's pictures of it if you if you google ansonia lodge mm-hmm. it's it's in mohegan lake new york and it looks like it's straight out of a steampunk story it's that it's that victorian architecture and i'm like this is going to be the this is the perfect neighborhood for you know the strange things that you might find in a Shadowlight and Persona game. You know this, disc- and and that's what it became. It, it became this revelation to the players that there is something more about the world than what we tr- previously understood. One person in particular, one player in particular, had uh, she wrote her character. His name is Declan, and he's going home for the first time after his mother passes away to go through her effects. He had a very strained relationship with his mother his mother was into all these sort of like esoteric things crystals and tarot cards and and so as a kid he was mocked for having a witchy mom and so he he went in the absolute opposite direction you know purely rational purely empirical mm-hmm. uh, went to college to be a history teacher really wanted nothing to do with anything that was that was esoteric or or occult or anything like that well in the discussion in kind of having a very brief backstory discussion with the player, I said, well, okay, we're, you know, we, 
here's everything that we know about the mom. What about Declan's dad? And so we start jamming. One of the questions that did not come up in the safety discussion was, um, how do we feel about mm -hmm. family members who have passed? I lost my dad about five years ago and- um, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. So I just wanted to make sure. I was like, Does everybody, is everybody cool with us talking about family members, brothers, sisters, parents who have died? And nobody really had a- Objection? Nobody really had a you know a strong line. Yeah, no, no objections, no strong lines on it. And I was like, all right, well then, so the story of Declan's dad, I didn't know this in advance. And it's part of not, not really plotting in advance or not scripting in advance was the story of Declan's dad became the driving factor cool. for the plot and i did and 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 it wasn't until i read the backstory that julia had written for declan to get that and i picked out that little bit oh, okay dad died before before declan was born well what declan discovers is that dad didn't really die dad disappeared and that's what how where everything kind of lit both literally and gotcha. figuratively that's what caused everything to start so but you don't get that from scripted written fiction because you don't have that interaction of two people. No. That's one of the things I love. That's what, that, and that's what I love so much about no. tabletop RPGs and about collaborative storytelling. It's, it's critically important that the GM or DM be open to surprise, pleasant or otherwise, uh, from their players, from the dice, just from if they expect the players to zig left and they decide, oh, let's zag right. There's this really interesting rock over here that caught our attention for half a minute that is a lot more interesting to us than the glowing tree that's trying to sound wise and dispense quests, you know? <laughs> there is certainly a challenge to that because with certain storytelling archetypes, step one of the evil plan needs to go off so that we can worry about the possibilities of step two and step three. <laughs> but if the players do their damnedest and actually thwart step one of the evil plan, well, the GM better be prepared to roll with it. They better have a, like, you know, be able to spin a backup or say, oh no, and then the, the floor explodes and an even worse baddie rises up through the smoke and the rubble, you know. Or conversely, the, the GM says, hey, you know what? I really didn't see this coming. I have to be honest with you. You know, I, you, know you could have five different contingencies for what might happen. You could envision, okay, they might, the players might do this, the players might do this, but you, you could literally not see coming what happens when you have a level of communication and trust with the table to say, hey, you know what? I didn't see this coming. And as much as I prepared in advance, like I need to regroup. I feel like that's, a, that's an important thing for both, for both sides of the table. I, I feel like the players should be respectful of, of the fact. Some degree of work goes on the part of the GM mm -hmm. goes into understanding the, the, the game that you're playing, understanding the rules, understanding the the published content whether you're you know whether you're just you're you're flipping open the monster manual and you're using a monster that's already statted or if you're flipping open a pre-written adventure and and you know everything is is uh scripted out in advance i feel like the gm shouldn't feel embarrassed or 
inferior by saying, hey, you know what, guys, I need to, you know, you, even if it's I need 10 minutes, it could be I need 10 minutes or I could need until next week. I mean, I, I just feel like that GM should be able to say that and not feel like they're letting their group down. I think that's important. I recently had an experience with our Anywhere But Now table with an upcoming mod. We'd gotten through the first half, more or less, of the adventure, and something just hadn't been clicking for me. And after we'd wrapped up, I talked with the group about the possibility of, like, taking a mulligan with half of the adventure past a certain point because it felt like it had gotten a little bit lost in the weeds. But I felt comfortable enough with them to say something needs adjusting here. I don't feel like the table is necessarily having as much fun as they could. I don't know that this is going to be as much fun to listen to as I had hoped. You know, I want some time, take it back to the drawing board for a second, look at what's going on and make adjustments. And we had a short conversation about that. And being able to trust your team, have an open dialogue about that is really important. Now, obviously no one enjoys getting caught flat-footed. That's why it's called flat-footed. Right. <laughs> but trusting in players that you've played with before and have built some rapport with, you know, by building trust, by giving them a fun time mm -hmm. in your company where they can feel safe to roll badly or make decisions in haste. <laughs> <laughs> or, or roll, or watch them roll really, really well. Like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in, in that Nerds with Dice game that I just ran, like the, the third episode, one player in particular was just, was just literally on fire. And I was like, hey, more power to them. I mean, that's another thing too, is, is being a fan mm. of the characters, despite all of the terrible, awful things that you're throwing at them. You know, the, the Tomb of Horrors and, and, and all this. Yeah. I still want to see them win. I still want to see them, you know, yeah. accomplish whatever, whatever their goals are. Not like, you know, kicking puppies or, you know, stealing candy like, from children. I mean, there's something to be said for the mwahaha moments. They're very fun. But even at my core, I don't, as the GM, want the players to lose. I don't want their characters to die. I don't want them to not have fun. What I do want, what interests me, is pushing them, is scaring the pants off of them and forcing those characters that they're playing to get resourceful, you know, to really think about what's important to them when they are up against a deadly monster, whether if they are cornered with a ticking clock or third thing, when they are threatened, when they are scared, do they run? Do they panic? Do they fight? And how does that go? You know, and I still want them to feel safe in that environment. Right. I did want to circle back to the concept of the Greek chorus as part of a tabletop game. Sure. How do the PCs interact with the Greek chorus and something like that? Like, let's use the example that you just brought up of one of the players with their late father figure whom they later discovered was actually only mysteriously missing. Well, I mean, I don't, I just, I just felt like it was a, it was the right 
kind of terminology to use for something that's already been in place. I mean, the, the, the GM is responsible for every character at the mm -hmm. table that is not a player character. So, you know, the players might have, you know, by default, they're always going to have one character, but they may have sidekicks, they may have contacts, they may have family members. The group, I think, should decide, mm -hmm. hey, who's going to take agency for those characters? So in a superhero game where, you know, where Batman has has the, the, the Batman family, the person playing Batman might control every single member of the Bat family, might control Nightwing, might control Damian Knight, might control Robin. The whole Bat family. The whole cadre. Right. Might, might control them all, where where the, the supporting characters, the player is rolling for the supporting characters. It could get very... Um, mm kind of like domain management level, I guess you could say. Um, if you remember uh, Birthright, which was the which was a, a campaign setting for D&D that it was more than just a setting, it was it was we're going to we're going to take the next step and we're the, our adventurers are going to become lords and barons and they're going to have territories and and they're going to control their their respective armies and things like that. So, I think it comes down to everybody deciding who is going to control which characters. So the chorus will control every character okay. that another player isn't explicitly controlling. So the chorus will pick up that mask and put that mask on and that will be the, you know, the 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 waiter or the server at the diner or it'll be the, you know, the family friend who who knew Declan's parent or did, knew Declan's mother and knew what, you know, why was she so witchy? Well, it turned out that, you know, she was so witchy because she somehow figured out that that Declan's father didn't die. That he disappeared and she was doing everything she mm -hmm. possibly could to try and figure out how to bring him back and all the tarot cards and all the crystals and all the ouija boards were all meant to he's someplace else we're going to figure out how to get him back and um but also at the same time really kind of being so focused on that that you take <laughs> that you may say to yourself, well, you know, I love my son and I want him to have his father in his life, but so, so focused and so, you know, have the blinders on, on that, that you take away from the, okay, well, I'm still his mom and I still need to be his mom and something is missing okay. in the process of that as well. So, but just specifically focus on what, how does the, the chorus play a part in that? Like I said, I think it has to do with, we say... Okay, and and so, you know, I've played in games where, okay, you know, it's this relatively small group, but you mm -hmm. may have a variety of different roles that need to be filled. So people are going to play multiple characters. So okay, you know, Bob is playing these two, and Sally is playing these two, and Trent is playing these two, mm -hmm. and the chorus will play everybody else. So it's about it's about just that distribution of player-controlled characters and chorus-controlled characters, which I don't think is necessarily... I think it's it's not always explicitly mm -hmm. mentioned. The game doesn't explicitly say you can do this, no, but I sure, think it should absolutely. definitely be a part of the conversation. Players should always have a solid grasp of what's available to them so that they can play with those expectations and push envelopes and <laughs> try to figure out new ways of doing things. Exactly. And I mean, I've played in games where I've had multiple fully static characters. And for example, in third mm. edition D&D in 3.5, you had the leadership feat. And the leadership feat lets you have a cohort. 
and the cohort was effectively a second character that you could play that would be right there alongside of you. A LeFou to your Gaston. Exactly. I've got two full character sheets with full slates of class features, and if they're a spellcaster, they have spells, and I mean, that level mm. of, I mean, sometimes that level of management for a single character is challenging, let alone two. So part of my approach to coming up with uh, allies and adversaries in Shadowlight and Persona was to say, they start out with the barest of, of available stats. Like they have their six mm -hmm. stats and they have a, you know, they have two shock levels and, and that's about it. And then you decide, the player decides to invest development points, which is how you talk about advancement in Shadowlight and Persona. If you choose, you can invest your development points in your sidekick or in mm. your cohort or whatever you want to call it. And that allows that character to become more complex. So you balance the complexity of your main character with wow. the complexity of your supporting characters. So that you're not, you don't wind up with, you know, two characters that you're just getting, you're getting overwhelmed by. And I've been there. I, as a matter of fact, I just recently, okay. last year, I played in a uh, first edition Pathfinder campaign where it was the, the, the DM or the GM is explicitly wanted the, the characters to be high level. So we had started with second edition Pathfinder and I was like, I can't jump into a brand new game that I've never played before and play a high level character. Can we at least do, if we can do first level Pathfinder, I remember enough about 3.5 where I can make it work. Compromise. Okay, fine. So I'm ready to go 15th level characters. Oh, okay. Well, you could have the leadership feat. You could have a second character. Well, well, almost on my brain just broke. Getting the opportunity more recently to jump into Pathfinder Second with a low-level character has been much more rewarding because it's given me the opportunity to, to literally work my way up Good. and to understand Good. how the game works uh, with a lower-level character. So I get that. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential for overwhelm at the table, whether you're the GM or whether you're, you know, the, or a player. That makes sense. I'd love to walk through a hypothetical scenario just so our listeners can get an idea of what makes Shadowlight unique. So let's say you're on an alien world. The PCs have been built out okay. and the handful or so that uh, have been built out by their players start in a crashed escape pod with no idea what awaits them outside. If this were like a Doctor Who game, okay. I could imagine them, you know, doing okay. awareness rolls or ingenuity to see if they could get a scan of what's going on outside or if they could find any supplies in the pod before they venture out to whatever awaits them. And in D&D, &D, I could see them doing an equipment check to make sure they're fully yeah. armed and have access to their healing potions and whatnot before they venture out. What would, how would, how would that work <laughs> Uh, for a game of Shadowlight. If day one of game one, you've had a successful session zero, your players know what to expect from you, how would that kick off, do you think? So I'll preface a little bit by saying that um, an early version of uh, Persona actually had mm -hmm. the characters get equipment okay. and have those, those pieces of equipment have benefits separate to their traits. And it was actually, I somebody said to me along the way, you know, these characters have an mm. awful lot to play with. They're 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 relatively robust. They're all, you know maybe almost too powerful by having both their traits and their equipment, which give them trait-like bonuses, benefits. Yeah. Yes. 
why not just say that a trait could be a piece of equipment? So you have your you have your tech, you have your um, you know, your your mechanic, your your specialist, and he's got an enhancement. Sure. So my enhancements. So you have you start with skills. Skills are the things that you can do, the most basic things you can do. You have enhancements which make you better at your skills. That either are more, you know, more feature-rich things you can do with your skills, or bonuses to your skills, extra dice, re-rolls, and so on. So that your specialist character okay. could have a broad frequency spectrum analyzer as one of his enhancements. When you use your broad frequency spectrum analyzer, you get an extra die when you roll operate, which is your kind of catch-all skill for doing stuff with with gadgets. So that would be my. So I would say the the the, the escape pod crashes on the alien planet. The specialist comes out with his broad frequency spectrum analyzer and says, "I want to roll operate. I want to scan the area and see what come and, and see what I see." Your scout character might say, "Well, I want to." I want to do perform a kind of a visual scan of the area. I want to, I want to assess the situation. So, every Shadowlight and Persona character has six automatic skills. This was kind of a, a an evolution of the system where I said, you know, maybe it would be beneficial uh -huh. because of the fact that so much about Persona is do it yourself. You define the skills in your own in your own words. You define your enhancements in your own words. Your powers, okay. your talents. You there is no exhaustive list. I thought it would be it would be beneficial to people who are playing for the first time to say here are six skills that are available to you from the outset, and they can either be proactive or reactive. So discern, which is your kind of your perception skill, would be your your scout would pop out of the escape pod and he would roll discern. So every pretty much every role in Persona Shadowlight Persona is opposed. First of all, you would decide whether or not a role is even necessary. And, you know, if, if there's obviously something hidden that is that is trying to avoid uh -huh. notice, then that thing is going to be the opposition. Whether it's, you know, whether it's a predator that's hiding in the jungle canopy, or it's a, uh, you know, an assassin hanging around the corner waiting for some unsuspecting person, you know, they're going to roll their sneak and somebody else is going to roll their discern and you're going to compare the results and whoever wins. So that's, that's how you, that's the resolution. The resolution is, is the opposed role and the comparison that escape pod crashes. First of all, as far as basic equipment is concerned, if you have a skill, you have the equipment that you need to perform that skill. So if you have a, a blast skill, like to use okay. energy, to, to shoot energy weapons, well, you have a very basic energy weapon sidearm. Now you might be a heavy you might be a heavy weapon specialist, and you might have Susan, which is your, you know, your big uh, f off chain gun. <laughs> um, you know that you need the you know you need the the gravity compensating arm uh, in order to be able to wield because typically they get mounted to you know an Apache attack helicopter. Susan carrying the the massive gun, and so that's going to be a series of enhancements that's going to represent Susan. Actual game, actual game, actual game. Actual game, actual character named his his big his big his BFG named it Susan. I don't think I've ever come across a player who hasn't named a weapon big enough that it took both hands to wield. <laughs> I mean, and I mean in this case it was more than two hands. In this case it was I need two hands and I need uh you know I need something to comp gravity compensator gravity compensator yeah so um, yeah so 
you have your basic equipment. If you if you have a first aid skill or you have a doctor skill, you have bandages and and medi gel and you know depending on what your your setting and your genre is, you know you have um, you know how you have med kits, right? Et exactly. It's not until you want a special piece of equipment. You want some sort of enhanced. I want you know the doctor's sonic or a lightsaber or. You know, that's when you start talking about enhancements, and that's when it, the 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 player is expected to invest character resources in that piece of equipment. Okay. Um, so the the, uh, the the escape pod crashes. The specialist comes out with his hand scanner and does his his full spectrum uh, signal analysis. The scout pops out and his heightened senses, and he he visually scans the area, looking for the potential for predators. You know, blaze trail. You know, start hacking through the the, the under the the overgrowth and uh, mm -hmm. and you know look for shelter. You know, you might have somebody else who's trying to uh, make sure to see. Okay, well, can we repair the escape pod? Can we possibly? Do we have communications on board that you know maybe we can get in touch with? Uh, there's a really cool green Ronin, and it's actually still available in their store. I just looked the other day. They had come out in in the days of 3rd Edition and the OGL. They came out with a variation on D20 that they called True 20, which did away with all of your di your damage dice and reduced everything down to the D20. So instead of doing hit points of damage, you had toughness levels. Basically, I would make a toughness... If I swing a sword at you and I hit, you, we roll a toughness roll, and I roll the toughness for the, my sword, and you roll your... You roll to resist the damage and so on. But in their GM screen, their narrator's kit, they put out an adventure that you could play one of two ways. You can either, because it was a universal system, so you could play any type of genre you wanted. But the, the adventure that they put out was you could either play as fantasy heroes or as science fiction heroes. If you played as science fiction heroes, you were inside of a generation ship that crashed on a low-tech world and you come out trying to figure out what was going on. If you play the fantasy heroes, you're an inhabitant of the world, and you see this monstrosity come come out of out of the sky, and and you know it, it catches your attention, whatever. And that's another thing that I just that that I love um, is is the that's idea that you marvelous. can you know two different points of view, and then you start asking the questions. Well, you know, you have this crew of people in this escape pod, and well, you know, how did they get together, and where you know what was their previous job, and what are their goals and what are their aspirations? Like, I started putting together campaign frames for Shadowlight Persona that would be, do a lot of that question answering in advance. So if people wanted to kind of jumpstart, and my space opera jumpstart, I call uh, a, co uh, a covenant to mend a galaxy in tatters. I decided that all of my campaign frames were going to have very evocative names. Successful. Success. So the idea is, is that take, take your beloved science fiction space opera property and what if the alliance had their war with the empire but neither side survived it, it was just so the the victory was so pyrrhic that nothing was left intact you know the federation and the dominion um the uh humanity and the silence yeah the humanity and the silence you name it they had their big war and neither side survived so what does the galaxy have to do the galaxy has to pick up the pieces and so there's no galactic government. There's no, everybody is just figuring out how to get by in their local star system or their local star cluster. And the characters are all veterans of that conflict, of, of that war. But 
it doesn't matter which side they fought on because both sides are gone. You have no authority. You have no coalition. You just have people. And they've all gotten together and they all fought on one side or the other or a third side. Maybe they were you know, war profiteers or crime lords or whatever. It doesn't, but it doesn't matter. Now you're all in the same boat, both literally and figuratively, and you're figuring out how to get by. Yeah. The slate has not been wiped clean. The slate has been obliterated. <laughs> right. And so everybody is figuring out how to function in a galaxy where the rules may change from one star system to the next, from one region of the galaxy to the next. And how do you move on and how do you survive with that in mind? So those questions are just as important as, okay, you crash in an alien, you you crash on an alien world in an escape pod. You know, what do you do? Because Mm -hmm. one person may say, well, I want to learn everything there is to learn about the galaxy. This is a great opportunity for me to do a planetary survey on a world that's never been explored. And one guy may just be like, well, I just want credits or I just want, you know, valuables. I just want to, you know, I just want to go and I want to find the locals and I want to see what I could steal from them. Like every character could have their own motivations and whatever. And Mm -hmm. that contributes to a good, a rewarding experience. I couldn't agree more. Like having PCs that have strong desires, that have clear goals of I want to get off the alien planet. I want to be the richest mercenary that ever mercenaried. I want to find the golden truth that almost killed my father. You know, like (laughs) part of our job as the GM or the DM is hopefully finding a narrative that weaves those together so that we don't immediately split the party in three directions as they all go off for separate tasks, you know? Exactly. I was gonna ask, it sounds to me like Shadowlight and Persona can encapsulate just about any genre or setting that you or the GM that picks it up could imagine and want their PCs to inhabit. I wanted to ask you, as the creator of that system that can encapsulate all these different genres, were there any unforeseen challenges on the road to building your own game? Were there uh, unexpected, I say unexpected surprise, but all surprises are unexpected. <laughs> what surprised you on the journey to building your own game? A lot of it is in the past. So I, uh, um, if, if there were surprises 10, year, 10 to 15 years ago, I, I guess one of, the, one of the challenges at least was, you know, coming up with something that seemed... I, I mean, I, I seemed seemed reasonable, reasonably compatible. You know, you could mm. you could look at the pieces from game X and say, "Oh, this is where I see them in Shadowlight and Persona." Um, mm. But I'll give you an example of can it can it support just about any setting or genre? Uh, one game that I always loved and my friends did as well is Shadowrun, and love the lore, love the setting. Love the thing. Love the uh, you know the the books were incredibly immersive. You know you you open up the Street Samurai catalog and you have this like you know Shadowrunner commentary on the side. Like you're actually looking at it at a uh, a cyber deck and you're you're browsing through this this digital artifact from from the setting. But the rules were terrible, at least in my in my humble opinion. I just felt like they were very bloated and you know you're rolling buckets of dice and and too much crunch. Too much crunch. So 
I want to say somewhere back in like 2011, 2012, we looked at each other and we were like, yeah, we'd love to play Shadowrun, but we, we didn't, we're just going to jettison the rules and we're just going to use Shadowlight Persona to to do it. And it, and this is going to be our, you know, Cyberpunk New York or Cyberpunk Seattle or whatever we're going to call it. We're going to file the serial numbers off and we're going to... We then started to say, well, how do we do Essence? In, how are we going to model Essence? How are we going to model Cyberware? How are we going to model... And because Shadowlight Persona is such a kernel, I feel like it opens up a lot of opportunity to be able to say, well, it gives you the opportunities to model. And how are you going to, you know, what what does the game need? What sort of knobs and dials do we want to play with? Because there's going to, you know, they're going to scratch a, scratch the itch. And I look, I mean, I personally see it as, it's, you know, I guess it's my toys. So I guess I, you know, it, it does, it, it frequently scratches a lot of itches for me. But... I guess that was sort of a thing that surprised me is, is that I that I would get as much enjoyment out of this thing that I made about like when I sit down to make a character from scratch like how am I going to express this character concept in a character that I make so th there's that I mean more recently it became because a lot of what Persona used to look like was very kind of organic creature focused so the, char the character sheet said health and it said injury so it was very focused on the characters as people and i made the decision to very fondly with much love basically rip off the bronze rule from fate from the fate rpg which says that anything can be a character the fate fractal basically you can express any sort of concept with a fate character you can give them you can give them skills you can give them stunts you can give them stress and consequences you can give them fate points and express them as characters. So I basically was like, you know what? I don't see how that can be any different from in Persona. So my challenge then became, well, I've got these rules that say health and say injury and death and dying. Well, how, what do I, now how do I change all this terminology to be much more abstract or, or give the opportunity for the abstract? So I could create a fully static character, quote unquote, that is a security system and your your computer hacker could come to that security system and that security system could have vitality and shock it could have its own stats it could have as a matter of fact i even got so so into the abstract because in fate somebody said well if anything can be a character why not make the adventure a character and you come up with aspects you come up with the goals of the adventure to be their aspects and and I mean, it's incredibly like you have to you have to be very open minded when it comes to the, the levels of abstraction. I started noodling with how you could build a Shadowlight and Persona adventure as a character and have the character as the adventure be the opposition. And I mean, it's it's not it's not easy. And I have looked at it and put it aside and walked away from it and come back to it. But I feel like it's a, it could potentially be a good tool for the chorus to help them structure. Because one of the things I always find out, find when I'm running, and it always makes me kind of feel bad, is, is I want people to feel like the dice, the rolling the dice matters. Sometimes mm -hmm. I almost feel like, Absolutely. especially in remote games, where you know I don't have a camera on my dice rolls. Like I just, I expect people to trust that what I say I roll is what I roll. I want to make sure that I'm representing the game 
as more than just me looking at di numbers on dice and just making it up. So right. I want the, the people that are running a Shadowlight and Persona game to have tools at their disposal to help them structure at least to provide some level of, of mechanical structure and also to be able to pick things up on the fly like again you know you they zig when you wanted them to zag and now all of a sudden you know they're in they're in the villain's secret lair and they're surrounded by 50 ninjas and well how do i model those ninjas well i'm i could say i could have them make 50 attack rolls or i can say hey you know what we're going to break these ninjas up into groups and each group is five groups of five and each five is going to be its own character like it's just resources it's 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 uh, i want because one of the biggest challenges that i found is teaching people how to play the game you know i wrote the game i had input from from uh, from a creative team for all intents and purposes but you know i my name is on it um uh -huh. i i made the final decisions but one of the biggest challenges I found was how do I teach it? How do I get people to understand it? How do I get people to have the, the light bulb moment where it's like, well, I can do all these things. I can yeah. build my character literally. I don't need a, I don't need anybody to tell me, well, you know, if you want to do this, you've got to have this, and then you've got to take this feat, and then you've got to have this class. Like that was one of the things that bugged me, and what that was a design goal in going into Persona was give me the kernel and I'll build my character to work the way I want my character to work. Mm -hmm. That's a thing that's valuable to me. But along the way, I have found that people struggle with that a lot. And so yeah. I've provided a lot of examples and a lot of sample characters to be able to look at this and say, this is how you might do it. But it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a negotiation between the player and the chorus on how you express character traits and attributes. You make an interesting point and you touch on something that I have personally always found fascinating about the teaching process. Because people think in different ways, they respond to different things, and they're going to catch, like Velcro, onto different aspects of the lesson plan or the lecture or the gameplay. Yep. What I have studied and found the most effective is something of a four quadrant approach because some people are gonna need to know more than anything else, the how of the game. Mm -hmm. how, many not, how many dice do they roll? How many stats do they get? How many skills, etc. And the what of the game. What is the concept? What genre are we playing in? And then there's the why. What are our characters doing here? What do we want, yep. etc. And then the what if. What will happen if I do this right? What will happen if it goes off the rails? What will happen if third thing, again. And I have found that when I'm putting together like a mod for something or a campaign adventure, covering the what and the how of it like how the play how the characters can interact with the world around them and the what is the world around them and the various factions and details that you've decided are important to them so that by the time they get to the why like the the motives that they have for interacting in this sandbox that you've painstakingly put together for them in as you say 
uh, years and years of game development and feedback from other creatives, by the time you get to the what if, like this is the expected, hoped for, anticipated feeling of quote unquote, doing it right, mm -hmm. you know? And I have seen some players struggle with picking up new games if the what if hasn't really uh, been shown or if so much attention is on the what of the game and the concept of it that the how is kind of, you know, kept off to the one little box of details in the manual that they can get lost, they can get a little glassy-eyed, and God forbid, even lose interest. Oh yeah, and I mean, that, really was, that was very much, you know, there there was this um, kind of philosophical uh, movement, I guess you could call it, you know, in, the, in and it was, you know, a lot of it was driven by um, the open gaming movement, you know, this idea that, Oh well, we have the we have the D and D rules. We can use the D and D rules to play any kind of game we want. So I can make D twenty horror. I can make D twenty sci fi, you know. And so people started to say, well, um, system matters. Like the game matters. It shouldn't just be well. You could do anything you want. And so I guess you you have you have to necessarily you have to kind of qualify. Well, yeah, you could do anything you want. But saying what the game is about, what the characters do, those things are important, and that's kind of that was my that was kind of my idea, and I, really my next big move push with Shadowlight Persona is to flesh out the campaign frames, and to say, okay, you know, if you need some constraints to jumpstart your game, look at Covenant or look at uh, Gun Barrels and Wicked Rails. I think was my was my Steam Western um, name. Um, nice. you know, uh, you know, these are genre touchstones. These are, um, this is what you will do to get your game off the ground. But at the same time, I don't want those things to be straitjackets. I don't want people to say, oh, well, we're playing a space opera game. We can't do X. I just feel like these are my, these, the, this is my time to play a game. Like when I play a game, I don't want greedy games. I don't want like... You know, oh, you know, I I failed this role, and I might have to my my character's leg might need to be amputated, and and I'm gonna you know blah blah blah. Like I don't I don't want uh, Traveler where you know you go through your life your character creation and you die before you even start playing. Like I, I, that's that's not my expected when when I sit down to play a game. I want to I don't want the possibilities of the real world to come into into into. No. The occasion, into the equation. I want to. I want to leave the the real world is is terrible enough as it is. Let's just put aside the real world for a while and and uh, you know play with some escapism. Yes, exactly. So and some people some people want the grit. Some people want the realism and they want the groundedness and they you know they don't they want magic that looks a certain way and it's like okay well then you what what works for your group works for your group and your group will figure that out mm -hmm. and what works for group mm -hmm. B will work for group B and they'll figure that out. I guess my love of system and figuring out that connection between system and fiction and the tinkering with it and the, okay, well, what if we do this? And what if we do this? You know, not everybody's gonna be down for that. Not everybody's gonna be down for, for that level of like, of, of turning knobs, pushing levers, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to kind of, you know, I have to find my peace with that. And it, when I when I find people 
that are into that, then, you know, it makes it all the more worthwhile. Absolutely. Oh God, I should be charging myself a dime every time I've been saying <laughs> that word. I agree with your sentiment. <laughs> I appreciate that. I have found through repeated session zeros trying to kick the tires on the... God, I'm just mangling metaphors today. <laughs> so any group of even more than three or four people will have its own chemistry yes. that'll be at the table, depending on who talks the most, depending on, you know, who's the loudest, depending on all sorts of aspects that you can't predict before four strangers or four friends who have known each other since middle school sit down to a table with expectations or open minds of how that story that you're all putting together in your imaginations is going to go together. And like you've said before, with lines and veils and session zeros, you know, it's useful, if not critical, to make sure that everyone's expectations at least fit in the same arena uh -huh. and are trying to play, let alone enjoy, the same kind of game, yep. you know? Because a player who is perfectly comfortable at a table of Doctor Who with engaging problem solving and talking with NPCs and getting to the bottom of a mystery where things aren't always what they seem might not have a lot of fun playing a horror game with hack and with that leans more into the hack and slash you know mm -hmm. i mean people's personal taste affects how they enjoy things at the table they're playing right. some people some people like action movies and some people you know uh, some people love bridgerton and watch right. it three times in a no, row or or yeah. downton abbey or uh you know Benny Hill. The Gilded Age. The, or, yeah, the Gilded yeah. Age. But I mean, like, but like, like just slap, Monty Python, you know, just, just mm -hmm. silly, silly nonsense comedy, you know. Mm -hmm. And going back to the whole idea of safety, you know, you go to a convention and you're sitting down, you, you're potentially sitting down with people you've never met before in your entire life that have never met you. They don't, you, you don't know what they've been through. You, they don't know what you've been through. You know, you, no. you, you join something like, Nerds with Dice or Tales from the Forgotten Truth. You know, these people, they, they may have played games together with each other before, but you may never have played a game with them before. Um, and uh, in, as an aside, I, I ran a game of uh, Shadowlight and Persona using Covenant with the, um, with the Tales from the Forgotten Truth folks um, a couple weeks ago, a couple Fridays ago. And I... The, the funny thing is, is I, I felt like I had known them forever. Like I felt totally comfortable and we, we vibed on the same level of like what we find funny and, and so on. And it, and it, you know, it was just very refreshing because you just never know when you come into a, to a situation like that with strangers, you just never know. It, yeah. um, and that's why we have safety tools. We have safety tools because you never know. And at least we try to mitigate that. And we don't want people to have panic attacks because they're getting gotcha'd because, you know, so all of a sudden any number of possible horrible things could be mm -hmm. brought up and the GM wants to bring it up in the neighbor, in the nature of edginess but really it's something that somebody experienced in real life which was traumatizing and that person that person's going to have a, is, is gonna, pulls them out of a game pulls, exactly, exactly and so that's why we have safety tools. Exactly, exactly. 
Craig, do you have any pearls of wisdom that you want to share with our listeners? Because I know there are some aspiring GMs and DMs out there. Like, what kind of advice do you have for someone that wants to build their own rule system for a tabletop game? Play all the games. <laughs> I love it. Play all the games. Read all the games. Read and interact with as many people as you possibly can. I remember... One time I was at a game convention in New Jersey and Kevin Simbeta, who's the president of Palladium, was there. And I remember him mentioning uh, how there are people who play Palladium games that play no other RPGs. And I'm like, that's certainly a choice, but I, that's not me because mm -hmm. I, I wanna see every possible approach. I wanna see, you know, I, I want to see every possible approach. I want to judge it from whether or not it works for me and mm -hmm. and turn around. I mean, you know, Shadowlight Persona from is is just as much kind of my, my manifesto on my, it's my collective philosophy on what makes a good gaming experience for me. It's just as much mm -hmm. that as it is a functional game. So mm -hmm. Shadowlight and Persona is, and me are kind of, just like Shadowlight and Persona, I describe as being on a Mobius strip, basically, Shadowlight and Persona and Craig Hatler are on a Mobius trip, and we inter you know we we are either closer or farther away from depending on on things. But that would be my that would be somebody that wants to create their own game. Play all the games. Play all the games. Play with as many people as you possibly can. Go to go to game nights. Um, you know, go to find your friendly local. Be open to surprise. Be open to surprise. Go to your friendly local gaming store when they're doing a demo night. I'm, I consider myself very fortunate that I have a number of options right here in the Raleigh-Durham area as far as gaming stores and gaming board game cafes that run uh, RPGs. You know, I have I have my pick, and and now that we are able to do things and you know more, we're able to do more things in person than we have been able to in the last three plus years. You know, True. it's nice to be able to get back to the face to face because, but at the same time, I have found. I have had so many rewarding experiences with with joining in on people remotely. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I ran a game for somebody in Texas, in the UK, and in Italy. Uh, I've played with people from check times and differences at oh, one table. It, yeah, exactly. Saturday mornings is really the only time we could make it work because the people the, the 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 people in Europe were always five hours or so behind or ahead of us. So basically, the only time to really make it work was Saturday mornings. Um, Wow. I played in a group, a game with somebody um, in the Czech Republic, um, you know, uh, Brazil, uh, you know, just all over the world. To clarify to our listeners, I have absolutely no problem with playing with character with players uh, in other time zones. I've played game, I've run games for folks in Germany, in Australia, and things like that. My goal, though, is usually to stick to one time zone at a time so that I can hope, if not expect, that my players all have the same level of energy when they sit down to the table. You know, oh, for sure. so they all have just had lunch or are just had dinner or things like that. So I'm not dealing with someone who's yawning and not quite bright eyed and bushy tailed yet. And we've got someone else at the table who's also just ready to wind down. Right. I find that is a smaller speed bump to getting flow going if everybody's coming in from different time zones. Agreed. I say that while one of my uh, Curse of Strahd tables has people in different time zones. <laughs> so we, we state these 
aspirational rules, and we have already broken. Yes. It is what it is. <laughs> well, Craig, this has been such a delight to talk with you today. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me. I have a I have a link tree with seven or eight different places. Um, um, mm -hmm. These days, I'm mostly on Blue Sky and on uh, Dice Camp, which is a Mastodon instance, but it's always going to be some variation on Tezrak, T-E-Z-R-A-K. Uh, he was my very first D&D character. Uh, he's a, a, a big, uh, an angry dwarf with a big axe. That's great. Uh, so Tezrak or Tezrak the Imp Slayer, but uh, Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky, uh, Mastodon are probably the top four. I have my itch page okay. where uh, all, all of the um, the Craig Hatler games is craighatler.ish.io. Uh, and mm -hmm. then um, uh, Discord, I'm Tezrak. Um, and I don't have my own Twitch, but I wind up on other people's Twitches from time to time. Gotcha. Yeah. Great. And rest assured, the links to wherever they can find you will be in the doobly-doo. Awesome. In, in doobly-doobly-doobly. <laughs> nope, I tried. It failed. Sorry. Indubitably do? Yeah, there you go. Oh, close. A little clunky. Close. And finally, to our listeners, another big thank you for sharing your precious time with us today. If you feel it's been well spent, please share the joy of GMing with your friends who are looking to enjoy themselves. You can email your questions for me and our future guests and send fan art to anywherebutnowpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like me to run a game for you, reach out on startplaying.games. Leave a review, rate the show, and follow us on Blue Sky, Twitter, and YouTube at Anywhere But Now and wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Discord. Links to everything in the details. From all of us, I'm Casey Jones. There's exciting things to come, my friends. I'm glad you're along for the ride. Thanks so much, and have a great day.